This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley i hope you're very well on a monday i do hope you're well and actually not try to get an appointment to see a gp because if you are it's more difficult than ever uh, only about half of appointments are now face-to-face. That's down from about 80% pre-pandemic. And uh, the proportion of uh, appointments happening on the phone up from 14 to 40% in the past year or so. Uh, we'll be finding out your stories. We'll try to get through to your doctors. We'll also speak to uh, the GP Sarah Jarvis about what it's like on the front line like that. So that's our big thing uh, in a moment. But first... So on a Monday, it's our columnist panel. It must be Libby Rachie, it's Libby Purvis, and Rachel Sylvester. Now, it's that time of the morning where we speak to two of our favourite columnists. And on a Monday, it is Libby Rachie, it's Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. And Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. So uh, let's start with this report, which has come out in the last uh, hour or so. The climate change report um, warning that... That climate uh, change is is just a fact. Uh, it's been described as a code red uh, warning, a code red for humanity uh, is how it's been uh, described this morning, showing that uh, a rise in sea levels approaching two metres by the end of this century cannot be ruled out. We could breach the one and a half degrees uh, uh, increase in the average global temperature uh, before 2040. Um, uh, uh, this is a sort of, you know, the climate conversation going over on one side. On the other side, there's a big political conversation about who is going to pay for uh, the changes that we need to make uh, in our our lives here in the UK. What, what do you make of it, first of all, Libby? Well, we, we've had these warnings. We, we get these warnings. You're, you're never quite sure how far how far the science in them is 100% new. I haven't read this one in detail yet because it's only really just, you know, really just hit us. Uh, I mean, it, it, it is a serious thing. I think, I think the, 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 the fact that there's been all this sort of ridiculous fuss about our um, uh, weather minister and climate change minister shooting all over the globe having conversations. I was fascinated by the fact that Greenpeace and various other organisations, everybody except the Green Party, actually said, no, nonsense. You know, it's important he gets out. It's important we have these conversations. It's important that this diplomacy goes on at a very high level internationally because uh, th- that's the only way it will work. It will only work on a global scale. And that's the most... In- 
enormous, enormous ask, isn't it, is to ask the world to um, cooperate on on any big thing. Uh, so all we can do is is kind of listen and hope and do the small things and support the small things. But otherwise, as individuals, we just have to have to hope, really. What do you think, Rachel? Because there's a there's this a sort of everyone's like something must be done. It's a it's just a fact now that this is what's happening. That we get down to the nitty gritty of it, and uh, there are warnings that the poorest families will will bear the the greatest burden from uh, trying to to shift towards net zero. Mm. It's one of those things where everybody wants to sound like they're doing something but nobody wants to pay for it uh, as in so many issues but I think in the end we're all going to have to pay for it one way or another Uh, and it's up to the government to balance where that burden ends up most heavily so you know to what extent does the government subsidize people uh, who don't have as much money say to change their boiler Uh, uh, to what extent does it subsidize people to insulate their homes um everyone's going to have to probably pay more to fly uh maybe pay more for energy but again it's about does the government use other forms of taxation to then cross subsidize green uh more environmentally friendly behavior to make sure it doesn't fall on the shoulders of the poorest the most uh and it, you know it's up to the government to to make those adjustments to the wider tax system i think and then you you do also get to this sort of situation, Libby, where uh, some of the uh, how should I put it less convinced voices about climate change actually come from the Conservative Party or certainly the right of uh, of British politics. Uh, and actually, it might end up being slightly there's the mirror really of the debate over over lockdown. Not that many. If you look at the polls, the public overwhelmingly supported lockdowns. There were just lots of very noisy people in the Tory party that gave Boris Johnson uh, doubts. And that, that there's a risk with that here as well, isn't there? Uh, yes, I think I think there is there is always that risk. I mean, there's there's a whole there's a whole sort of cadre of people who just say I hate Chris Packham, I hate George Monbiot. They're just made, wanting to make everybody miserable. Um, and and I think you have to you have to resist that. You have to have the science. I'm always fascinated by every new scientific discovery which helps. You know, there are other ways of generating energy. People talk about fusion. You know, fusion could be the next big thing. All these things, carbon capture, fusion, science. I mean, that's what I want to see subsidized. But what I don't, what I always sort of baffles me is, is there are certain things which are elephants in the room never spoken of, like the fact that streaming, this thing which everybody does now all the time and all these films are constantly streamed, actually uses up more energy and causes more emissions than aviation does globally. And yet nobody ever talks about this. And if you write about it, everybody goes very quiet, you know, because they want to, they, they don't want to have that taken away from them. There's a whole new technology has arrived in the last decade this fast streaming and these huge server farms are massive massive emitters and um nobody nobody is talking enough about that because it's one of the things people don't want to give up you know like like motoring like flying um and actually more so than flying so all these things just need talking about endlessly and and um you know bigging up and people all of us need to admit what bad things we're doing you know i'm trying to do fewer of them but it's quite difficult in a modern ordinary society isn't it 
because if you can do it, uh, it's a hard thing to to, to crack. Uh, um, Rachel, there's been lots of talk over the weekend about further tensions between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, and even the uh, report in the Sunday Times yesterday that Boris Johnson had joked about sacking Rishi Sunak. Um, uh, once again, this is going to come down to the willingness of the of the Chancellor to uh, to possibly go after richer households to get them to bear the brunt of Britain's climate change targets so they can protect uh, low-income families. And actually, you know, if politicians... Boris Johnson is a man who likes to think of his place in history and, uh, you know, tackling some of the big issues of our time, whether that's social care, climate change, you know, he's got an opportunity to do that. He's got a decent majority. There's, uh, there's, a, there's an election still some uh, years off. The the uh, opposition could hardly uh, oppose him uh, seeking to do something on climate change, given that they, they like to see themselves as greener than everybody else. Um, do you think he's got it in him to, to, to take that uh, opportunity by by the horns? Well, I'm not sure whether he knows what he wants to do. So the interesting thing politically is that uh, in contrast to the lockdown issue, on this, Boris Johnson is instinctively green whereas on lockdown he was instinctively libertarian so he's he's on the side of the sort of environmental activists on this one whereas he he wasn't you know he was previously on the side of the sort of tory right wingers who were opposing lockdown instinctively um but the issue is as ever as with social care he he's he can't have a row with the chancellor until he knows exactly what he wants to do uh, and the problem is Rishi Sunak has got lots of very specific schemes that he comes up with on everything from um, lockdown to the furlough to environmental issues. Whereas Boris Johnson talks a lot of rhetoric, but he actually hasn't got any detail. Uh, so until he comes up with specific proposals on social care or on the environment, uh, it's hard to know whether he is going to have his place in history on those things. Well, we'll we, we might get a better idea of what they're going to do uh, when we know uh, when, when actually some people go into Whitehall and start working on these plans. Um, the story splashed across the front of the Times today, a very similar story in the front of the Mail as well, about um, uh, ministers getting increasingly uh, cross about um, uh, their staff uh, not going in. So we'll we'll see if that uh, <laughs> we'll see if that uh, it changes things. Um, let's talk about. I'm really get interested in this this story about uh, apprenticeships. Apprenticeships. Middle class parents should open their minds to apprenticeships when their children receive their A level results tomorrow. That's according to Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary uh, in England. Um, we hear this all the time uh, from uh, senior politicians, but there's always this slight temptation, Rachel. Obviously, you're running the Times Education Commission, looking at all these these things. There was a slight temptation that, that apprenticeships are a brilliant idea, but for somebody else's children. Well, actually, I think the middle classes already have or are opening their minds to it. I, I did an interview for the commission with Ewan Blair, Tony Blair's son, who now runs a company which um, helps place people in apprenticeships. And he said um, he's increasingly uh, overrun by applicants from middle class households. And he said, you know, that apprenticeships now do pass a middle class dinner party test, as he put it. I think this, he said there'd been a quadrupling in the number of applications from private schools in the last four or five years. Uh, and actually, if you look at some of these placements in Google, BAE systems, you know, the Treasury even has um, apprentice economists, you're guaranteed a job at the end of it. Often you get a degree out of it as well. Uh, and you're paid. So you, you're not only are you not racking up student debt, you're actually paid a salary. So it's looking like an increasingly attractive option. 
Uh, and actually, I think um, it is with them. People are thinking about it more even handedly than perhaps in the past. We had a survey uh, for the we did a poll for the Education Commission and it said that it found that 42 percent of people thought apprenticeships were better preparation for the future compared to six percent for a degree. Uh, so oh, I think wow. public opinion is actually changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got some um, at Liu uh, and Blair's company, um, which is called Multiverse. They've got some, um, you know, some places that people have got more oversubscribed than Oxbridge. You know, so some these very desirable, some of these apprenticeships. Well, yeah, in fact, because we um, Times Radio recruited some apprentices earlier in the year, and we're completely inundated because, as you were saying, you know, if you want to get into radio, you can go into a degree if you want to, and that's very good. But ultimately, the skills that you'll learn on the job, uh, you do some tra- you know, four days a week on the job, you do some training as well. That's 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 you're going to have to learn that at some point. If you're going to be paid to do that along the way, that's exactly. what do you th- what do you think about this, Libby? You've covered education for a long time. Absolutely. No, I mean, and what's more, I know two families in my just small um, circle of acquaintance, you know, middle class families who absolutely did that. You know, one, uh, both sons went off to the boat building training college. They now have a skill can take them anywhere across the world. And the other went into a banking thing. He had a choice between the docks at Felixstowe and, and, and banking, both good apprenticeships, and, and got um, got the banking one and is now kind of storming through all the banking exams and he'll probably end up as a Chancellor of Exchequer, I suppose, one day. Um, so it's um, it's really, it's it's interesting. I think it's great. I think there's a slight... There's a slight resistance. Some kids I have talked to have said, yeah, but the thing is, it means it's like going straight to work. You're going to have a boss straight away. And at university, you wouldn't. At university, you'd be running your own learning and <laughs> you know, concentrating, as it were, on yourself and on your learning. These are people who wanted to do humanities degrees. And I say, well, you know, on the other hand, you, you won't have a great big debt, you know, and in your spare time, you can then educate yourself culturally. And, um, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's the way to do it. There'll always be a need for degrees for things like sort of science and medicine, dentistry, certain kinds of engineering, where you have to go through university degree. But I think this will probably hit the humanities humanities degrees much harder than anything else and some people will be very sort of depressed by this but on the other hand we have saddled the young with enormous debts at the moment for a lot of enormous debts from universities which suddenly say they're not even going to do lectures in real life anymore Uh, and I think uh, I think that pendulum has to swing I'm really pleased that Ewan Blair um, you know sort of confirms that it really is and that there's no snobberies left among sensible people anymore. I have to say, running your own learning is the best euphemism I've ever heard for, for not getting up till lunchtime. That's the... <laughs> in the pub, running your own learning in the some pub. Of us, some of us have got up. <laughs> Oh, that was very good. Uh, yeah, but you can see, any... I mean, the, appre- the apprentices will have a boss. You know, the apprentices yeah, exactly. will have someone yeah, they have yeah. to if answer you, if... to. And, and that's the a whole different world when you're 18. And the alternative having a slightly more relaxed... Exactly. Yes, you might not be wanting... And knowing that's going to be the rest of your life, if you can put it off for a couple more years, I can see the appeal. I can see the appeal. Libby Purvis and Ray Sylvester, of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. You get your first month for free right now. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next... Your doctor won't see you now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Right, next on the Red Box podcast, let's take a look at what's happening or isn't happening in GP surgeries. Yes, so in the early days of the pandemic, we were told to minimise face-to-face contact with anyone, including our GPs. Many routine procedures were cancelled as the NHS was put on a war footing. And since March 2020, we've made it through uh, without just about the health service being overwhelmed by COVID. Now country's reopening again we can all go back to work go to nightclubs and festivals and hug our relatives but how easy is it to get to see your doctor face to face the latest figures show that while the overall numbers of appointments are back to pretty much pre-pandemic levels about six thousand appointments uh, in total every week just 57 percent well, about half are face to face compared with about 80 percent uh, pre-pandemic about 40% of appointments are now done by telephone. That's up from 14% two years ago. We've been asking for your stories on uh, exactly this. And we've been, I'll be honest, we've been absolutely inundated. So many of you sent them in. We'll share some, we'll share some of them uh, in a moment. Some positive, some negative. Some of you saying, uh, look, our doctors have been really good. I've been able to get in, see them, treat them. Others, some terrible stories of people ha- having misdiagnosis. Uh, but what's it really like in a GP surgery right now? Let's speak to one of them, uh, the GP, Dr. Sarah Jar. is also clin- clinical director of patient access. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Now, Sarah, I have to tell you that uh, we've had more reaction to the fact we're going to talk about this than almost any other topic I think we've done in just over a year of being on Times Radio. So it's something that people feel very very passionately about. They're obviously very keen to get and see uh, their GPs. What's the situation with with you and uh, how how have you seen things shift from face-to-face appointments to, to more of them being on the phone and so on? Well, what we need to bear in mind is that the NHS has been trying to get us to move towards more online consultations for several years. In 2017, they had the general practice forward view and it launched a GP online consultation system fund. And very few GPs took it up because we were very busy seeing patients face to face. Then the pandemic came and we were ordered in a standard operating procedure to have this you know, digital first approach. So the government has been, I, I'll be entirely honest, I think they've, they've, um, They've been very underhand in the way that they presented it to to the public, um, you know, sending out letters saying GPs are required to see patients face to face when we already were. Um, I think, you know, it's been a real concern for a lot of GPs. But we know I didn't go into a 
into general practice, became a GP 31 years ago, and I didn't go into general practice to be part of a call centre. But by the same token, <laughs> I also know that for, for a lot of my patients, actually, online consultations are, are really convenient um, because, you know, you don't have to spend, you can submit a form when you want. You don't have to spend, take a half day off work and go and sit in a doctor's waiting room and be coughed on by somebody else. So a lot of my younger patients in particular um, really like it. But by the same token, you're absolutely right. We are worried about, you know, missing diagnoses. We are worried about older people, perhaps people who are digitally, um, you know, not not as adept. Um, and, you know, we miss the face to face as well. But as you say, about just under three and five. So 57 percent is about it's, it's going up month on month. Um, but in April this this year, general practice in England saw thir- did 31.4 million appointments. Well, that's basically one for in fact more than one I think for every person in the population so uh, yeah for every two people in the population over the course of a single month it's a huge amount of work and the problem we've got is the number of GPs has been dropping for years and is it because explain the situation because it, it the 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 work, the life of a GP is a slightly strange one isn't it because you are uh, self-employed uh, rather yeah. than being sort of part of the NHS machine that some people might think of. And so, and that's partly why I think it might well also explain why, of all the messages we've had, there is such a massive uh, variation in the experience that it, it does seem to make a difference. You know, is your GP particularly, you know, uh, enthusiastic about embracing technology and all that sort of thing and speeding up processes? Uh, and you have someone else who's maybe been at the back of that queue and hasn't been uh, quite so key. But just explain what it's like being a GP. Uh, who decides these things in terms of, you know, how many appointments are online uh, and all that sort of thing? Well, we have all sorts of requirements that we need to fulfil in terms of appointments being available. For instance, appointments available on the day. And a few years ago, the government said, right, you've got to make X number of appointments available on the day because it had told the, you know, told the voting public that's what they were going to have. Well, the problem with that is if you haven't got enough GPs, then that just means that the forward booking appointments for people who need to book, for whom coming in today is not convenient and who need to book in advance are not there because we can't divide ourselves in two. And I mean, there's no question every GP I know is absolutely we're, we're all working you know 12 hour days gps are absolutely exhausted and it really doesn't help that whenever there's a problem with hospital availability everyone blames the government and whenever there's a problem with gp availability everyone G- blames the gp so morale <laughs> is pretty low among general practice is there then an argument about um uh, completely rethinking um, uh, the way that we operate. I mean, it's interesting. You, you're making the point that actually, you know, the government has been trying to get uh, GPs to change the way that, that they operate before, and uh, the pandemic has accelerated uh, that. So it, it, we're not going back, then, are we, to eighty percent of uh, appointments being face to face? No, I don't think we are going back to eighty percent of appointments being face to face. Basically, because there aren't enough GPs to do it. And, you know, it takes 10 years at least to train a GP. So they're, they're just, you know, the numbers just are not going up in the way that they are. I mean, basically, the, the data suggests that the work GP whole time equivalent, what's called the full time equivalent GP workload is shrunk by 363 um, since 2015. But actually, um, in 2015, only 88% of practices provided the data, and today it's about 100%. So actually, it's probably shrunk by several thousand during that time. And during that same time, of course, and when I became a GP 
um, what, 31 years ago, as I said. And then we did virtually no preventive work. About half the work I do now is about keeping people well. So we've got twice as much work as we had. We've got an eight, an ever-aging workforce. Uh, life expectancy is increasing. So we're having to deal with more and more people, which is fantastic. I'm delighted they're staying alive, but they need a lot more, a lot more work. Um, and, you know, you look at the figures, the, the, the whole time equivalents, the numbers of permanent GPs dropped by a thousand between 2015 and 2018 by 174 in, in 2020. And we are doing more for the patients we've got. So no, we're not, we, we, we can't go back anytime soon but what we're trying to do is to get more of the people who can do um, online consultations and who want to do online consultations to do them and hopefully what that means is that we'll be able to give more time to the ever-increasing proportion of people who are elderly frail have lots of complex problems and we can deal with all their problems at the same time and give them longer face-to-face appointments there's a there's a how, how, as a GP who, who you know, you, you said you didn't go into your uh, into it because you wanted to run a call centre. How difficult is it doing uh, those things online or over the phone? We've had so many messages from people. Mm-hmm. There's a terrible one. Actually, to be fair, this wasn't a GP. This was a, a neurologist of uh, somebody who emailed in and said that their brother suffers from paranoid schizophrenia, epilepsy, OCD. Was had got was shaking really badly. They had an online video uh, consultation. Urologist said we couldn't see any any shaking. Um, would ask to see him again virtually in six months' time. That was going to be in July. Now that's been put off. They'll see him in person, but not till January next year. And that just sounds like a terrible situation. But if you're making those decisions, if you can't, I don't know, look in someone's ear, look in them, all of that sort of stuff. How concerned are you as a health professional that you're you are making those right? Uh, calls um, when you you don't have that person physically in front of you. So I was more worried at the start of the pandemic when it was much harder to see people. And often we would ask people to come in and they would be too scared to come into the surgery. If I said yeah. somebody needed referring to hospital, I was getting a lot of people saying that they weren't prepared to be referred to the hospital, even when I thought, for instance, they might have cancer. Um, but there are now very strict regulations, very strict guidelines that GPs have to have the capacity to call a patient in for a face-to-face consultation if they feel they can't confidently make that diagnosis without seeing them. Now, that's not always an easy call to make. The longer you've been a GP, probably the easier it gets. Um, and certainly, I think for, for young doctors, it's it's a real challenge. I've, I've been a GP trainer. I was a GP trainer for 25 years. And, you know, teaching them to do telephone consultations, living with that degree of uncertainty is a real challenge but we do definitely now have the capacity that if we speak to somebody on the phone and they need seeing we absolutely will see them that's something that was harder during the pandemic um, as a, a mixture of you know lots and lots of staff at practices off self-isolating or off sick um, GPs being given this order that they had to do everything online and patients not wanting to come in so there are you know there are lots and there are I know there are also some examples of where people feel the GPs were, were reluctant um, to have them face to face or to see them but I think the point is that the GP will, if they have a professional responsibility and they know that they are medically legally liable if they don't see somebody, if they think it is necessary. So, you know, if the, the government then came out and said, oh, GPs are um, required to see patients if the patient says they want to. Well, that's never been the case, actually, <laughs> um, because, you know, sometimes the patient will say, but I want to be seen. And you'll say, yes, but 
I know that your symptoms don't require an appointment. And we're trying to, you know, we, we want, for instance, to make more use of community pharmacies. Community pharmacists are an amazingly underused resource in the UK. And we've got more and more so-called PGDs, which are patient group directions, which means that pharmacists can provide um, things which previously were only available on prescription. There are more and more medicines which are becoming available, which were previously only available on prescription that your pharmacist can now sell to you. We've got the community pharmacy consultation service, which means that for minor illnesses, we can be, for instance, a patient access. We have a triage tool, which allows basically the receptionist to have the doctor on their shoulder and say, OK, take the patient through these questions. And if they answer no to any of those questions, they can safely be seen by a community pharmacist because it is a minor illness and the, the, the pharmacist can actually give them more than the GP could. Well, thanks so much for that. Uh, Sarah Jarvis there. Dr. Sarah Jarvis uh, from, uh, is also clinical director of patient access. That's the picture from uh, the GP's surgery. Uh, in a moment, we'll speak to Catlay, health editor of The Times. Uh, we'll also speak to uh, Dr. Graham Jackson from the NHS Confederation and Rebecca Rosen from the Nuffield Trust. And we'll hear some of your stories too, because you've sent in so many of them. We'll do some of those next. Uh, this is Matt Chorley on Times Radio in association with GoDaddy, providing the help and tools you need to grow your business online. Yeah, good morning. Nice to have you with us. We're talking GP surgeries uh, this morning. How easy is it to get to see your GP? Latest figures for England, at least, uh, show that uh, pre-pandemic, 80% of appointments were face-to-face. It's now down to about 50%. And uh, about 40% of uh, appointments are now on the phone. That's up from 14%. Uh, two years ago. Uh, let's hear some of your stories now, because like I said, we've had so many of these uh, uh, sent in. Let's listen to a selection now. This is a message sent in from Barry Hanna. My employer provides me with an app which allows me to book a GP appointment via Zoom if I need to, and that GP could be based anywhere in the country. But I recently did this, and I was told by the GP that I need to book a blood test. So over the next few days, I tried phoning my GP surgery to book a blood test, but I could never get through on the phone. Uh, so a few days later I got on my bike and I rode round to the surgery to try and book it in person but a receptionist came out and told me that they couldn't deal with me in person they could only deal with me on the phone so I said I've tried several days I can't get through on the phone and they insisted the only way to talk to me was on the phone Uh, I continued to argue the point and the receptionist quite helpfully said that she'd go back inside and if I moved away she would phone me from reception on my mobile phone Uh, when she did so I said, I need to book a blood test, please. And she replied that surgery policy is only to allow blood tests once I'd spoken to a GP from that practice. So reluctantly, I agreed to a call from a practice GP later that day. And uh, on that call, I was told that I did indeed need to book a blood test. Uh, And in order to do that, I had to phone reception. Uh, And I argued and I said, I can never get through on reception. They won't deal with me in person. And the GP said, there's no further help I can give you. And she put the phone down. Uh, at that point, I gave up and I've never had the blood test. Oh, that was bad. I mean, that seems like a, a torturous experience, but one that's probably quite familiar. That was uh, Barry. Here is uh, another message, this time sent in by Ivor, which has been voiced up by one of the Times Radio team. I broke my breastbone in June and in two calls to my GP, I was fobbed off with take painkillers. I ended up in so much pain that I was taken by ambulance to A&E where I was at least x-rayed. But even now I'm not recovered. I have damage to the costal cartilage and muscle attachments. My GP is still hiding behind the phone. I'm now going to private consultant and I'll be signing up to a private GP. 
Yeah, that's another message now. Uh, this one is from uh, Times Only listener Katie, also voiced up by producer. My GP offers telephone appointments bookable by an internet booking system. Due to my symptoms in February at the height of the pandemic, I was invited in for a face-to-face consultation and then referred to two hospital appointments within a month. And luckily nothing was found, so the urgency was just in case rather than because there was something seriously wrong. I had a recurrent ear infection in June and was again offered a face-to-face consultation after a phone call. The doctors are lovely and personable and can't seem to do enough for me. I can't praise them enough and frequently do as I know how rare the experience is. Sandringham practice in Hackney, if you're allowed to say the name. None of my other friends in London have a GP anything like this level of service, so I have no idea how they do it, but I think they should be cloned. Pre-pandemic, they also provided exceptional mental health care to me at a difficult time. Okay, I will stop gushing now, but I am not sure where I would be without the support I received from Dr Akhtar. Well, there we are. That's a nice positive one uh, to end on there from uh, Katie. Uh, listen, um, uh, that was uh, that message had been read out by one of our uh, colleagues here at Times Radio. Well, let's now bring in our panel. Rebecca Rosen is from the Nuffield Trust. Hi, Rebecca. Hi there. Uh, we've also got to Dr Graham Jackson from the NHS Confederation. Hi, Graham. Good morning. Uh, and first of all, uh, Kat Lay, uh, Health Editor of the Times. Uh, hi, Kat. Good morning. Uh, nice of you about the business. How serious an issue is this, do you think? I mean, I, I genuinely, we haven't had as many messages about this, but I don't think that any other topic we've covered in the past year on Times Radio. It's clearly something that people feel very um, passionately about. But as we were hearing from Sarah Jarvis, this isn't going to go back, is it? The, 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 um, the, 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 the days of everyone having a face-to-face appointment with their GP are not going to come back. But this, this system has to be improved, surely. The number of people who've told actually quite heartbreaking stories about, you know, they've struggled to get appointments and, you know, in one case, you know, they've had cancer diagnoses missed and, and that sort of thing. Uh, is there a way to solve this system? It is tricky, isn't it? And it's um, because our relationship with our GPs is so personal. You know, they're there throughout our lives and they see us at some of our most um, vulnerable moments uh it, it gets very emotional very quickly when you are talking about this issue essentially i think it's a, it's a supply and demand problem um even before the pandemic there were not enough gps um dr sarah jarvis who you were speaking to a bit earlier i think outlined that um quite clearly and we've also got a changing population so we've got more elderly people with long-term conditions who need more complex care than perhaps people used to uh, in the earlier days of general practice. Um, and at the moment, because we've we've been through the pandemic, there's even more demand. You've got patients who put things off because they were nervous uh, about going to any kind of healthcare setting during the height of the pandemic, and they're now coming forward. You've got patients with long covid You've got increased mental health demand because of the impact of the pandemic, um, because of changes to how hospital services were delivered. You have more patients on waiting lists. And if they're not getting the treatment that they need in hospital, they're going to be going back to their GP asking for more support in terms of things like physiotherapy or or pain relief. Um, And you've also got 
the the long-standing staff issues but also um gp surgeries aren't immune to the effects of the pandemic so if one or two or three doctors get told to self-isolate that also reduces what they can do um so it's going to need a bit of work to uh to get out of it and i think yeah you know, the use of other professionals is, is something that the NHS has been talking about for a long time, whether that is using more pharmacists in GPs to do things like medicine reviews to check that patients are on the right drugs and that their drugs aren't interacting with each other. Uh, community nurses, I think we're all quite used to being told, actually, the practice nurse can see you about this particular condition and they're also talking about more directly bookable appointments for things like physiotherapy so I think our relationship with our GP surgery is going to look quite different in the the coming years. Yeah that's definitely the picture uh, that we seem to be getting. Let's speak to uh, Dr Graham Jackson now uh, from the NHS Confederation uh, also a, a GP. Graham what's what's your your take on all this? Are people wrong to be cross with their GP surgeries? Um, uh, I thought it was an interesting point that Sarah made that if, if something goes wrong with the NHS everyone blames with the hospitals people blame the government if they can't get through to their GP they blame their, their GP. Yeah, I think that's very valid, Sarah. And, and a lot of what Sarah has said, um, I would um, absolutely agree with. And in fact, uh, what Katie's reflected there. Uh, I think there's, um, there's an issue about recognising, first of all, that the whole NHS is under pressure. Uh, we, and, and of course, um, primary care and general practice land is where most people connect with the NHS and therefore it's much more evident in that. But a couple of things, I mean, I reflect a lot of the things that Sarah said in my practice, but a couple of things that are just worth, uh, worth emphasising. One is about getting away from talking about GPs. And primary care is, is, a, is a multi-professional environment, not just practice nurses, but as you mentioned, they're physios, advanced nurse practitioners, paramedics, uh, not only in practice, but in primary care networks across the area, which is a broader way of bringing practices together, providing services. The other thing I would like just to emphasise is that, um, and when we're training uh, junior doctors, the assessment of an individual um, in a consultation, often about 70 to 80% of the information we want about a patient is the history. And the minority is what the examination brings. This has always been the case, always been the case. So actually, a remote consulting scenario on telephones, there's so much information that is gleaned by the history. And so there's a different, a different way of going forward. And just one final point before um, this, just, there's some real positivist issues coming out of remote consulting. Take example, dermatology, with people with high quality phones. Now asking people to send us photographs in, we get a better view of a mole or a rash on the screen that I can that I can boost up than I would if I saw them in person. And as a concern, I've already got the data to send to my dermatology colleagues. So there's lots of positives about remote consulting. I appreciate it's difficult for people, but there's a, there's a change in behaviour that we need to take along the way. We're here to provide for our services best with our patients best we can. And there's absolutely times when face-to-face is the only way forward. Thank you for that, Graham. Uh, finally, Rebecca Rosen from the uh, Nuffield Trust. When at a time when, well, there's another plan to overhaul the NHS uh, going through Parliament right now. Although obviously Sajid Javid uh, getting his feet under the desk as the new Health Secretary. Uh, talk of social care reforms coming down the track. They're going to cost a lot of money too. Is, is the only way to really fix this to to look at the whole of the NHS together, and it's probably going to cost more money. 
Wow, two two very big points there. Um, I think, uh, you know, there are people making the case for more money. But I think if we're talking about how you get through to your GP, there are some really important things that we can do. I think by um, the, the other people on the on the show so far have made some really important points. I spent the last 18 months researching the switch to um, remote consulting um, uh, since the pandemic. And while I would support um, what was just said about the, the real pressures on supply, and you might want to make a case that you need to pay more to get more staff into general practice. Graham's just mentioned the new roles that are coming in. Um, uh, there are actually more GP trainees coming in now. You, we, you need to fund them well. But I want to highlight just a couple of points that have come out of the research that may provide us some thoughts about a way forward. So the researchers um, looked really closely at how the experiences of patients when they're trying to book appointments. And two words have come up that I think are worth thinking about. One is communication. Actually, when people understand what some of the barriers and blocks are to why they're given a face, uh, offered a remote appointment rather than a face-to-face or an e-consult rather than a face-to-face, Quite often they understand, not everybody, but quite often you can manage some of the tensions that arise just by being communicating really well. The receptionist really trying to understand what the patient's needs are and the patient really listening to the receptionist about why they're being offered a particular type of appointment. But the other word that's come up that I think is really important is co-design. A lot of the changes that were made in the way people have to book their appointments came in the in the height of the pandemic. And they're being changed back now to a new way of operating, more remote consulting, you know, face to face being part of it, but not all of it. But not many practices are really involving their patients in how they re-establish services post-pandemic. And it's really important to remember that not everybody can cope with remote consulting. If you haven't got a smartphone, if you're deaf, if you've got a tremor and you can't press the buttons on your phone, you need something different. So the idea of really working with patients in your practice and every practice is different. If you're in an area that's got lots of wealthy young people with smartphones, that's very different from being in uh, in outer East London. So co-designing services so that they work both for the practice and for patients of all types and all vulnerabilities is another thing that's really important to do going forward. Rebecca, thank you very much for that. And I have to say that a lot of the messages we've had have been as much about the uh, the doctor's uh, receptionist as, as much as anything else. Uh, Rebecca Rosen there from the uh, Nuffield Trust. We also heard from David, uh, Dr. Graham Jackson from the NHS uh, Confederation in Catlay, the uh, health editor uh, for the Times. Honestly, we've had so many messages about this. Some of them good and positive. Sylvia sent in a story about how great her doctors were in Upper Wensleydale, f- had a phone appointment, week later, no better, went back, got some pills, uh, all, uh, all hunky-dory. Claire also said, Books an appointment face to face with the GP uh, at the height of the pandemic. I was referred for tests. It was all uh, all went very well. Um, uh, there's an, but then another one. Jane emailed in about how it heard surgery. There's now a buzzer entry only into the practice, so you have to basically shout out your ailments through the telecom system with other patients in the queue standing behind you. Not brilliant uh, for con- confidential environment. But of course, there's a real the real point about this is the concern about patient safety and, uh, and uh, the concern of uh, things being missed. Let's take a list of one final message. Uh, this was sent in by Claire, uh, which was uh, read by a colleague. 
My son-in-law was diagnosed last week with stage 4 bowel cancer. There is no stage 5. He's 31 and otherwise well, but has been trying to see a doctor for over nine months. Despite phone conversations and eventually getting an appointment, socially distanced and no exam, he was only diagnosed after going to A&E and getting a scan. I'm so angry. And I think that's probably something that we can all have sympathy. So the key message to take away from this is if you are concerned about your health, persist, 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 persist. Uh, keep on phoning, keep on, uh, don't uh, miss those appointments uh, is, is the main thing. And then hopefully, you know, everything's going through a big uh, state of flux. But thank you so much for sending in all of your messages. We've been at emails, texts, tweets. Uh, we've been absolutely inundated, so it's a sh- uh, we show it's, uh, it's a it's a it's a massive issue for you. All. So I hope that I hope that the conversation this morning has, has shed some light on what's really going on in your GP surgery. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, ten till one on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast, and if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.